How's it going, everybody? Aloha and welcome back to the Brick House for another edition of Bose Football Final here at KHON2.com. And anywhere you download podcasts, I'm your host, Rob DeMello. Joining me, former University of Hawaii offensive lineman R.J. Hollis. And R.J., Rainbow Warrior football team fell to 1-2 and two on the season with a Saturday night loss in Corvallis, Oregon to the Beavers of Oregon State, 45-27, a game that... The University of Hawaii found themselves in quite the predicament in the first quarter, falling behind 21-0. The Beavers posted over 200 yards of offense in that first frame alone. Now, Hawaii, when you look at the score, 45-27, able to fight their way back to make this a ball game as this game went into the second half, but too little too late for this Rainbow Warrior football team. We have a lot to talk about, but first things first, when you take the whole game, the entire picture of everything, and you went to bed on Saturday night, what was the biggest takeaway from a 45-27 loss to Oregon State? Uh, well, I think it was a lot more uh, clinical than when you had a whole day to digest it. Uh, one thing I think definitely didn't help was, I don't know about you, but I tried to have it set up on my FS1 and then I'll ended up watching Stanford USC for like 20 minutes. And I don't know what happened with that, but then come closer to second quarter, UH Oregon State pops on. Now, I had been keeping up with the game prior to that, but for anybody that wasn't, by the time the game comes on, it's 21-0. So I think for a lot of people watching the game, that's, that's an, almost impossible to get your game started watching that. And, and like you mentioned, 216 yards allowed in the first quarter. They didn't complete and this is uh did not complete a pass until the second quarter so to say they started slow is almost an understatement it was almost a a wet cement start but when you go back and look at the full four quarters of film and this is not the first time this has happened we just came from a game against portland state where the first half didn't tell the same story that the second half did and i think that's kind of a big thing for uh this week yes they lost it wasn't a very pretty game by any stretch of the imagination but at the same time being on the road against any Pac-12 team as UH period this is this is a university that has won 14 away games in the last decade so let, let's not get ahead of ourselves and start throwing expectations where they need not land uh when you start a, a game viewership wise 21-0 that's hard to, to to bite but to be able to come back to be able to have some of the plays they had to have guys like Nick Martiner go over 100 yards rushing for Shevin not to have a single passing yard in the first quarter and still end up with 336 yards passing I think there's a lot that can be taken away from this UH still has yet to reach conference so they do get yet another week to try and get the the cobweb sort of knocked out but you know it's never good when you see your team fall in such such a deep hole but at the same time for them to have the second half that they had gives some glimpse of, of optimism so to speak so it's not as bad as you think and it's not as good as you think uh, a kind of a generic way to put it, but at the same time, I think when you look at the final score, when you look at how 
Some people may have reacted to the game, may have felt after the game was over. It's not as bad as you think. That's one of the closer Pac-12 road games that have happened in recent memory, you know, uh, with UH to begin with. So there's a lot to take from it, both good and bad. And I think once you sit down and watch all four quarters of this uh, as a team and as a coaching staff, they'll see the same thing. Yeah, and uh, going back to if anybody's confused on what happened with the game time on Fox Sports 1, the Yankees and Mets were playing a special night game on Fox because it's September 11th. And so that game was on Fox and it was going to lead into USC Stanford. The Mets-Yankees game went long, which then put USC Stanford on Fox Sports 1, put the University of Hawaii and Oregon State on Fox Sports 2. As soon as the Yankees-Mets game ended, USC Stanford went back to Fox where it belonged. Hawaii-Oregon State went to Fox Sports 1 where it belonged, and and then uh, everyone was able to, to finish things out that way. So in case there was any confusion to anyone listening, that's what happened in regards to television for this University of Hawaii, Oregon State game. Now, RJ, you talked about a lot offensively and defensively of what happened. Let's go over some of the numbers real quick before we start kind of de- delving in to the different facets of this ball game. Shevin Cordero goes 24 of 49, 366 yards passing, two touchdowns, two interceptions. He was sacked three times in this game. He also ran the ball 13 times for 48 yards, extending plays, especially in that second quarter uh, where they may not have lit up numbers on the scoreboard, but it definitely stopped the bleeding a little bit because the offense was able to hold on to the ball, extend drives, and uh, he was able to, to kind of open that up for the Rainbow Warrior football team early with his legs. Calvin Turner Jr. had 10 carries. 21 yards and two touchdowns he also got into the receiving game seven catches for 106 yards and a touchdown he went goes over 100 all-purpose yards yet again in his rainbow warrior career nick martiner six catches 110 yards and a touchdown darius musau had six tackles but he was ejected from the game for a targeting call that will definitely be something we talk about for for many days here leading up to the San Jose State game because as you all know because of targeting in the second half being called he is ineligible for the first half against Hawaii's Mountain West Conference opener against the defending champs of San Jose State here this Saturday and that is definitely something that is going to play a role you imagine in how not only the University of Hawaii prepares for San Jose State but how San Jose State prepares for the University of Hawaii so Let's start with that first quarter. Speaking of San Jose State, it was eerily similar to that San Jose State game at Aloha Stadium last year when the Spartans jumped out to a 21-0 lead. Eerily similar to the UCLA game a couple of weeks ago when the Bruins jumped out to a big lead in the first quarter. And when you are able to kind of take a step back and replay in your head what happened in the first quarter defensively, what jumped out to you as the biggest reason behind giving up 21 points giving up over 200 yards of offense to open that game against Oregon State uh, I think I think it's kind of the war dog you know mantra in itself in high risk high reward a lot of blitzes a lot of you know extra guys being sacrificed in order to get some sort of pressure and even though it may seem like that puts you in the right position all the time a lot of times it doesn't a lot of times it has most of your defenders jammed in certain situations and you only have 
one or two safety valves to stop those big plays. I think Oregon State was just hitting the right button at the right time. And, you know, when some of those long runs popped, you could see it was only a Corey Bethley, only a Kai Kaneshiro, maybe one or two lines or waves of defense to stop some of these big plays from happening. Uh, 216 yards. That's that's a lot. That is a lot. And at the end of the day, don't get me wrong, Oregon State is a talented team. But when you go back and watch the film, you will see a lot of times it is just the wrong play called at the wrong time. Nobody can really have an exact science as to how blitzes are going to work out because you never know what the other offense is going to call. But if you look at the latter three quarters, you could see it was somewhat brought to a control. There was a lot less risk. They depended more on just the D linemen to get to the backfield, to get to the quarterback. I think they came out kind of with their ears pinned back, trying to get those big plays, get those TFLs, get those sacks. And in doing so, they left themselves open to some uh, big plays that you got to give Oregon State credit for. You just got to. They were good play calls. Uh, those running backs were very talented, um, especially – you know, their leading running back that went for over 150 yards. You know, these are talented players. This is Pac-12. This is Power 5, you know. So these are, are talented uh, kids, too. They're on scholarship, too. You know, their head coach gets paid, too. So uh, make no mistake about it. I'm pretty sure Ty Graham is, is in the film room as we speak, uh, dissecting how he can figure out a way to maybe not sacrifice as many of his good players, maybe figure out a way to rotate. He has to do something uh, losing Darius Moose out for the first half. He just had to lose Cameron Lockridge last week, which I know was a big hit, especially for that defensive backs group. So, you know, it's, it's a lot to break down. And at the end of the day, it's easy to, you know, kind of point fingers and say, oh, it's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. There's obviously things that need to be cleaned up. But when you're talking in specifics to that first quarter, I feel like Oregon State just hit the right plays at the right time. And once you start crowding guys on the line, once you start bringing guys down, there is nothing back there to stop those big plays. And once they got going, there was nothing really UH could do to stop it until they sort of tried to figure it out in those last three quarters. Now, a couple of those big plays that you bring up and you hit it right on the head when you talk about the high risk, high reward and, and the blitzes in the first quarter on a couple of those big plays, especially the passing plays, third down passing plays where you would see a blitz called and you would see a University of Hawaii defender be a split second away from hitting the quarterback quarterback able to get the ball out and then you have a one-on-one -on -one situation on the outside near the sideline is that something that do you take that do, do you when you look at how the play worked out with a defender in the face of the quarterback a one-on-one -on -one situation on the outside in most cases would you draw that up and say that's what the University of Hawaii wants or do you think that that's a predicament that they do not want to be in and that that needs to be avoided. Uh, it sounds silly because I think in the overall scope of things that you would always ask for that, that you would want a one-on-one -on -one situation, that you would want an opportunity to hit the quarterback. But after seeing what you've seen here over the first three weeks, it, what's your takeaway from that exact situation and, and, and play call that we saw numerous times not work out for the University of Hawaii in this game against Oregon State? Well, it's like I just alluded to, Rob. There's no exact science, it's ex exact science with this, excuse me. Uh, well, one thing about football that you got to understand is there's a reason that even with coaches like, you know, 
Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney that are so decorated that have been, you know, around this game for decades on end. You've almost never heard of a hybrid head coach. You've never heard of a head coach that can run both offense and defense simultaneously. It's Nick Saban's a defensive mind. Todd Graham's a defensive mind. Chip Kelly's an offensive mind. And they've been around the game for decades, but there's a reason that they're on one side of the ball. It is almost impossible to figure out both sides with so much that can be done and so much complexity. But here goes the thing. On defense, it's read and react. More than offense is a, is a, 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 a facilitated attack. It's, it's a planned strategy as we move these pieces to that place, this is going to happen. The defense sits back and watches these pieces move and tries to guess the next move. So when it comes to dialing up, you know, some of these blitzes, like you said, you get the one-on-one situation and the guy in the face of the quarterback. Well, maybe in Oregon State, he's in the face of the quarterback. But San Jose State, he's hitting the quarterback. There, there's a difference. Maybe against... You know, Portland State, he's sacking a quarterback against UCLA. You know, he gets picked up, and the one-on-one is a guy just getting obliterated. There's no exact science for this because you never know. That corner may be Cam Lockridge. The next play, it may be Cortez Davis. The next play, it may end up being Corey Bethley due to injury, due to any type of rotation. So when you're drawing up these things, you have an idea of how they're supposed to go. But at the end of the day, you never know what the offense is doing. So you could sit there and play it safe because we also saw plays where UH would rush three, drop eight. And when the quarterback has all day to sit back there, go on his Instagram and figure out, you know, if something's going to happen, if it doesn't happen, I could sit back here all day and then find that soft spot when it does open. So at the end of the day, if you don't risk it, you can still at the same time allow a big play to happen. So defensively, it's a lot more difficult to draw it up to get those one on one situations where you sacrifice a guy that could have been in coverage. Well, now he's blitzing. It, it's it's the essential uh, um, uh, it's the essential, you know, back and forth of going for it on a fourth down. If you make it. Hey, everybody loves you and you're a genius and you believed in your team and, and, you know, you just had all the confidence in the world. But if you don't make it, okay, yeah, that, that you're you're not smart. You shouldn't be coaching. Da, da, da. And if you don't make it and that decision causes you to lose a game, okay, well, now you got to get fired. So, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of X's and O's, you know, offensively. But when it comes to the defensive side of the ball, when you're drawing up those blitzes, when you're drawing up the, these counteractions for – for what's going to go, you are leaving yourself susceptible to that offense calling the exact play that's going to beat that blitz. Now, maybe they don't, but if it just so happens that they do, then regardless of what you pick, you're going to put yourself in a situation that you don't want to be in. So I think when it comes to, you know, drawing up defenses, having blitzes and things like that, you got to understand we are still not in conference play. These plays that may not work against UCLA, may not work against Oregon State, uh, could be absolute nightmares for UNLV, could be absolute nightmares for Fresno State. So, you know, saying that it's all one sort of situation with drawing up a blitz or, you know, sending Darius Moussau or sending Quentin Frazier or sending Cora Bethley versus keeping those same people in coverage, it's all just, like I said, risk and reward. What you're willing to risk for the reward you're going to get from it Sometimes you'd rather just sit back and bend but not break. And sometimes you got to go make things happen. So I think 21-0, you got to start making things happen. And at the end of the day, you can't just sit back and wait for games to get worse.
Yep, 21-0 hold. The University of Hawaii put themselves in against Oregon State, unable to climb out of it. When you look at offensively for the Rainbow Warriors, I think it was the 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 game that we've seen this season for sure. Uh, going back that we saw it in the Houston ball game in, in the bowl game victory of just trying to be able to understand the identity of the UH offense, the philosophies that go into the play calling, the what they are trying to accomplish, and and I think you've seen pieces in certain games. Uh, whether it works or doesn't, but you're able to identify, okay, this is what they're trying to do. I think this Oregon State game from beginning to end, the entire game looked similar from an offensive st- standpoint, that the, the game plan going in was the game plan going out. Uh, is that a fair assessment of what you saw out of this offense? And and obviously there are moments that that it worked to a, to a high degree. There are moments that it didn't work, um, but – but watching that game, you're able to identify that, okay, this is what the UH offense looks like. Is that fair? Uh, it is. And, and I think with UH's offense, it starts to get tricky when you have the dynamic players that you got in Shevin and in Calvin. I think with these guys having such a big, you know, part of this offense, there are certain plays where these guys just take it over. They do. They, they just – they make stuff happen. And at the end of the day, no matter what type of coordinator you are, you can't really account for that. But at the same time, I do feel like you said it was a lot more fluid. You've seen guys like Nick Martiner start to get more involved, whom Nick Martiner has been a healthy contributor all season. Somebody I think is starting to kind of throw his name in the hat to try and get more catches, get more touches, you know, be more of a, a big offensive presence. But when it comes to trying to design an offense like this, I think what they're trying to do is get that running game solidified and be able to lead Calvin Turner in one spot. Calvin Turner is – he's a playmaker. He, he does. He just makes plays happen. Now, you might have thought against Portland State of a lesser program, okay, he goes all the way on the other side of the field. You know, he does the reverse trickery. There's no way he's going to be able to do that against good competition. Then he does something almost eerily similar against Oregon State. And it's just like, man, this guy makes plays. So when you're trying to design something, that's one thing. When you're trying to have, okay, this is going to be the play regardless of who the receiver is, regardless of who my ex is, regardless of who my slot is, that's one thing. But when you got guys like Calvin Turner that's just, okay, let's just give him the ball. I I don't know how we're going to do it. I really don't care how we do it. Let's just give him the ball. That kind of throws into the, the, the flow of just having a design. So I think with this offense, they do have, you know, they, they have that kind of pistol formation. They'll spread it out. You know, they'll do their air raid. Sometimes, occasionally, they'll do an RPO. They really don't run too, too much. They do like to air it out a lot more. So there is sort of, I do think, a design. I do think there's some of an identity going. But, you know, Shevin, he, he's... I'm now starting to wonder whether or not we want him to throw or we want him to run. Because at first it just looked like broken plays that, you know, he's trying to make something extend, trying to make something stretch. I think now you're starting to see this guy's a serious athlete. I think now you're starting to see, hey, he, he's a little more confident and he'll do design runs. He'll do things where as soon as he sees the spread, hey, I'm just going to take off to begin with. That's not by design. When you run double reverses and you just throw it to Calvin, who catches it in the backfield, but then makes it 
23 extra yards after that. That's not by design. So there is a design to a certain extent, but I think right now they're trying to figure out the best way to culminize Shevin's talent and Calvin's versatility. And once they figure that out, I think they will be able to get a uniform design. I think the offense is still trying to iron out some wrinkles. They're still trying to see, okay, if we don't give the ball to Calvin or Shevin doesn't take off with it, who's going to be our next guy? Is it going to be Day-Day? Is it going to be Nick Mardner? Is it going to be, you know, even a, a solo turner? Is it is it going to be a Jared Smart, who's a very talented wide receiver that's kind of trying to find where he fits in this whole offense? So I think as far as identity, they're still trying to figure it out a little bit. They have two very talented players in Shevin and Calvin. So I, I think as the game goes, as they start to get into uh, – or as the season, excuse me, goes – and they start to get in the Mount West play. I think that identity we're looking for, that uniform identity, that if Calvin goes down, they're still going to run the same plays. If Shevin goes down, they're still going to run the same plays. I think they're close to getting that, but they still have to figure out exactly how they want to use Calvin before they get a uniform identity. Yeah, and I don't think there's any mystery. Uh, Todd Graham has made it very clear on what the offense is supposed to look like, and that – just goes back to his previous stops and the previous coordinators that he had and, you know, Gus Malzahn at UCF. And, and right. he talks about the, the speed of the offense and how quickly they want to get plays off, how many plays they want to get off. And yes, at the end of the day, when you look at an offense like that, and whether it's uh, Florida state with Mike Norvell or Malzahn at UCF and Auburn before that, at the end of the day, you see a lot of passing yards, but it's all, the, the passing game has always been set up by the running game. And when you look at just 88 yards rushing out of a football team that is labeled as run and gun, but there's no gun without the run, and 13 of those carries are Chevin Cordero, what do you think needs to happen in order for the University of Hawaii to be able to establish a running game with the pieces that they have in place? Because you can tell when a game starts that they want to see if they can run the ball. As the game goes on, when they realize they cannot run the ball, then you start seeing different plays being called and you see the passing game open up a little bit out of necessity. But when you see the backs that they have, when you see the offensive line, is this a fixable problem that, that they are not able to run the football game, especially early in outings? Uh, definitely. I think it's a fixable problem, especially when you look at the way the three games have been structured. You look at UCLA, and Hawaii, which just got out of control fast. Out of the necessity, you have to pass. You look at Portland State and Hawaii, which UH goes up 28 to zero. So now with the flexibility of time, you can run. Then you get down 21 to zero against Oregon State, where now back out of necessity, you have to pass. The question becomes when it's on UH, when it's you know 10 to seven and you just wanna run the clock out, or you're seven to 10 and you want to put yourself in position to get a field goal. It's completely up to you. Then we got to see, okay, what is this offensive identity going to be? The second thing is, and this is something that had just, it has to be done. You have to put Calvin Turner somewhere and you have to leave him there. The one thing that I do see is an, in, is a over, almost over advertent attempt to get him the ball. He's a playmaker, no mistake about it. But at the end of the day, you have 11 starters for a reason. He has to find a, a niche. Him and, and Bo Graham have to figure out something that is for Calvin Turner. So that way, whichever position he's not in, they can start designing plays for those players. My personal opinion, 
put him in the backfield with Day Day Hunter and Dedrick Parson, he becomes that electric piece for that running game that you need. The thing people need to understand about the running game is that it's not always set up to strictly enforce your will, strictly to, to ground and pound. Sometimes you want to be good teammates. Sometimes you want to give the defense three to four to five to six minutes of rest. Sometimes you want to hold on to a lead for those same amount of minutes, run the clock off and not give it to a offense that's just as high powered as you are. So I, I think that the running game has to be established for a multitude of reasons. I think once Calvin Turner is set in one position, which I think running back might be the best position for him, he's just so electric that if you figure out a way to give him the ball, you don't always have to throw it to him to get him there. And there was two interceptions on Saturday night that Shevin threw that were both aimed for Calvin Turner, one of them being straight out of halftime. So I think by putting him at running back, I think by putting him at the backfield, you can give him as many touches as you want to without the risk of the ball being in the air. I think you get a legitimate running game. Day-Day Hunter only got three rushes this game. Calvin Turner did get 10 carries, but it was only for 21 yards. He did score two touchdowns, but at the same time, you're talking between two very good electric players. That's 13 touches coming out of the backfield. 13 touches combined is not enough to even say you're making an attempt to go at a super good running game. So I think going forward, when you talk about establishing a running game, something's going to have to be done. Calvin Turner's going to have to get the ball. But I think with the receivers that you got, I think with Shevin being as confident as he is passing wise, you have more than enough weapons to still throw the ball while keeping your electric playmaker on the field and doing the running game, because as you mentioned, all year, regardless, the only thing that's been uniform about the offense is that the running game has not been the strength. The running game has not been the focus. The running game has not been something that they are going after. Day-Day Hunter did make good plays against Portland State. Dedrick Parson did get two touchdowns against Portland State. But when you go up 28-0, that's a lot different to being behind 21-0. These become situational play calls. We're talking about those play calls where this is what we want to happen and we're going to make it happen on our own. Well, the sample size is getting bigger for the University of Hawaii football team. Three games now in the books, one and two record, the victory coming against an FCS opponent, the two losses coming against the Pac-12, and then you have the Mountain West Conference schedule starting this upcoming week against San Jose State, the the defending champion. And so you're going to continue to learn about this University of Hawaii football team. And I think the learning curve gets really big this season because you're seeing them against conference competition. Now, one thing I want to ask you, RJ, through three games, when you look at the entire picture, what stands out to you to being the biggest concern that you have for this University of Hawaii football team? And then after you answer that, I want to ask you, or I want you to answer, what makes you most optimistic despite being one in two through three games? So so your biggest concern, and it and it could be offense, defense, special teams. It could be a whole. It could be coaching. It could be play calling. It could be whatever it is. Your biggest concern about this team being one and two, what is it? Uh, I think definitely control of the trenches. I, I think the offensive and defensive lines being able to establish more of a dominant presence. Um, like I said, the run game does need to be established. It needs to be a big part of 
the the offensive identity and make no mistake about it the backs are a big part of that but nobody's a bigger part than the offensive line then when you look on the other side of giving up the amount of yards they're giving up defensively and having to sacrifice extra guys in those blitzes like we alluded to earlier well that doesn't happen if we can get home with four guys versus having to send five versus having to you know send six or seven guys there to get home so i think that the trench play is something that i would put uh the top of my concerns just because in the game of football i know being a former lineman i know playing against good teams and beating teams that if your linemen are winning up front in a majority of the plays you're more than likely going to be winning in a majority of the games. Uh, another concern of mine is it's actually one of the good problems. Um, just figuring out what we're going to do with Calvin Turner. He, he is a electric playmaker. He is, but I do feel like they are going to get him the ball. And at certain points, they're going to get him the ball at all costs. I don't think that it's that type of offense where you don't have enough good guys besides him. Nick Martiner can play. Dayton Hunter can play. You have plenty of other guys that can play. I think when you figure out where to put Calvin, not that you can't use him, just where exactly we're going to have him and leave him and start including the James Phillips of the team, the solo Turners, the Jalen Walthalls, all these other guys that we went out and got, these tight ends that we went out and got. Let, let's find a way to start including them too. And once they fall asleep on Calvin, then we can give him another 300 all-purpose yards. And, and as far as concerns go, I, I feel like once those two things are meshed out, then, you know, you're, you're really going to look at a good team. You're, you're really going to see a good team. I think these two Pac-12 losses – definitely gave a different form of UH than they will be when they get in the conference play. But if they figure those two things out, I think this can still be a very good season. Now, on the side of optimism, there's quite a few things. Kind of bouncing off the Calvin Turner issue, there is more than enough guys on this offense that can still ball and they just right now they haven't really figured out how to get him but Nick Martiner he's gonna be a good wide receiver that guy is tall he's long he's got speed he can catch it underneath and he's a threat deep when those deep balls get to going Day Day Hunter even though he wasn't giving the ball a lot in the running game on Saturday night there was a back shoulder catch that he made that showed hey this guy's an athlete Let's 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 not fall asleep and pretend like, you know, we don't have other guys that can ball. So on the sake of optimism, Calvin Turner is a good player, but he's got plenty of other, you know, guys behind him that can make contributions like he can. Uh, another thing on the side of optimism is Shevin's. Shevin's confidence. And, and when I say confidence, I mean. As I see him play now, it seems like there's a lot less consideration for making mistakes. I, I feel like he's out there. He is playing his game. I think that him and Bo Graham have to figure out some sort of collaborative effort to where he can hit the field kind of like he did with the run and shoot. The thing about the run and shoot was we didn't have to look to the sideline to get the play call. The play call was whatever we decided it was. I feel like Shevin has been around so long. I feel like he's been there so much that he could go out there, give him the formation and let him do the rest. His, some of these plays where he's making, you know, some of these broken scrambles, some of these designed runs, I think he's truly just taking off and knowing he can outrun the defense. And once they get so focused on Shevin, then you see him start to get some of these passes open. And my biggest 
form of optimism, and I really want everybody to focus in on this. The University of Hawaii has not had fans since 2019. This is a football team running on solar panel energy with no sun. They are the sun. They are the only thing every game that they can feed off of, that they can get energy off of. And in doing so, they had a winning season last year, lost to UCLA, who went on to beat LSU and had a phenomenal first half in Portland State, a better second half against Oregon State. This is a team that doesn't even... Calvin Turner has not scored in front of a Hawaii fan on Oahu. You want to be optimistic? Imagine what is going to happen when Calvin Turner actually hears people cheering for him, when Chevin Cordero gets a start with a, a loaded fan base. These are guys right now that are purely running on their own juice, and football is a game of passion. I needed fans week after week after week to get through some of the grueling seasons we had to get through, losing and winning. Losing and winning, the fans count just as much. And when you have a team that has not seen fans since 2019 and still are going out there and playing football games, aren't getting thrashed, aren't getting skull drug, are still showing glimpses of excellence, still showing that they have playmakers that on offense and defense you should be scared of. When fans get around that, I think these guys turn into a different team and a lot of these plays that are getting away from them. A lot of these small time, you know, in incidents that are happening, they don't happen as much. So as far as optimism, I, I feel like there's so much more that UH is as a team. There's just no fans allowed at their games. You have a next level playmaker that you just have to get to a solidified position. And if you could get those two figured out, I don't see the Mountain West. I don't see anybody in the Mountain West having an easy time stopping or getting a W over Hawaii. Well, along those lines, uh, let's go to the Bose football final mailbox because uh, we have got a lot of input this week uh, following this Oregon State game. And uh, one of the questions that I did want to bring up and, and, and ask you and talk about was about the fan situation at Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex where – Again, uh, right before the season was about to start, it was announced that the city and county and the state would not allow fans at the University of Hawaii for at least the first couple of weeks of their season starting. And that includes women's soccer, women's volleyball and football. Um, you would imagine that nothing's going to change for this week. I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm, I'm proven wrong, but I cannot imagine that the reason for making this happen uh, and that's keeping fans away, nothing has happened since to make you think that, oh, okay, yeah. you're good now. Um, the question that was asked is from Quicksilver on Instagram. And he asked, why did the University of Hawaii do nothing in preparation of the season starting for fans. And so the, the, the question being asked is, is why didn't the university of Hawaii foresee this happening? And in regards to there not being fans allowed and, and there's a lot of different ways that he could be going with this. Um, I will say this, that, you know, we had known weeks prior, really about a month prior that the university of Hawaii 
was going to require vaccination uh, and masks at the stadium. 100%. And when that first happened, there was a little bit of a, a pushback from the public of, hey, this isn't fair. And, you know, but the University of Hawaii had that plan in place. I know that they had a plan in regards to uh, multiple different uh, variations of it, of full capacity, uh, you know, 75%, 50%, 25%. And, and each scenario, this is where the seating is. This is where the entrance is. Uh, you know, for, from my personal experience, I had to go through uh, as a media member for the game uh, against Portland State, two different checkpoints um, in order to get one bracelet and then a second bracelet. And so uh, these are things that the University of Hawaii took into consideration. I, I am stunned that no fans are allowed at Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex. Let, let me just put it that way. I mean, I said that weeks ago. I'll say it again today that I think that with what the University of Hawaii put out there, and this is what we're going to do to uh, put the fans and the state in the, the safest possible light in order for them to attend University of Hawaii football games, There's you couldn't ask them to do more than what they did, right? Vaccination, mass, checkpoints, seating uh, uh, zones and, and everything. Um, and and with all that being said, the Department of Health, the state of Hawaii said, no, that's not going to happen. Um, again, I don't anticipate that all of a sudden, because San Jose State's coming to town, the defending conference champion, that they're going to say, hey, you know what? Let your fans in. Um, we can all be hopeful that maybe family and friends uh, of players uh, like you saw with the University of Hawaii baseball season um, at, at the end of last year when there were no fans, but then towards the end that they could have parents uh, come in and you could have a, a couple of tickets for each player and, and we'll see what happens. But I do think that you bring up a good point that how is this affecting the University of Hawaii football team as the weeks and the months go on. RJ, how concerned are you about the situation at hand? That if this San Jose State game comes on Saturday night and there's no fans in attendance, like you said, 2019, a Hawaii Bowl victory over BYU was the last time that the University of Hawaii had a fan in the stands cheering them on. How concerning is this to you that it's very easy that a snap of a finger, things can go from bad to worse because you don't have that support in the stadium for you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know how much more concerned I can be. The one thing that people always knew about me was energy. And, and the thing about energy is that's, you know, yeah, I can bring it a little bit at, at practice, but the games was where it was at. That, that was what you did all of the practice for. That's what you did all the preparation for. Football only happens once a week. For this to be going on so long that nobody, not a single UH fan. Now, me and you have seen it. We were analysts. We were there last year. We were one of like 12 people that actually saw University of Hawaii play in person. There is about 20 to 30 people on this island that have seen Calvin Turner score in person on this island. 
this this is a guy that's made such a name for himself that him deciding to come back last year was like a a, a much smaller version of, of when Colt Brennan decided to come back in much another year. This is a guy that in one year was so electric, he got named all conference for something he didn't do. Preseason all conference punt returner, the man never returned punts. And he's been here for a whole year and now three extra games doing what he's doing with no fans to see him, with no fans to inspire, with no high schoolers to inspire. This, this is something that in the state of Hawaii is even rippling down to the high school level where you start to see the amount of recruits from three and four years ago in comparison to now, not having fans isn't just affecting the university. It's affecting the whole Hawaii football landscape. And for me, you already kind of saw where it was going when UH made it to the division title game. There was the commercials. There was that monologue you let me have on Spectrum that that got like 16,000 views talking about division title game. And then 22,000 people came. Granted, those 22,000 people saved it when in the fourth quarter, UH had to come up for that stop. Can UH make that same stop if nobody's in there? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I I truly do not know. And we talked about it last week uh, with the the Portland State game that when they're up 28 nothing in the first quarter and they're up 35 7 at halftime. And they're up 42-14 with two minutes left in the third quarter. Does Portland State have a chance to do the things that they do in that game if you have even, you know, with a, 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 a last-second made stadium, uh, you know, right. in 140 days with 9,000 people, are they able to do that when they can't get calls in? from their sideline? Are they able to do that when people are jumping and dancing and, 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 and celebrating with this UH football team? I don't know. You know, I was there and, and I really don't think that Portland state plays the way they do in the final 17 minutes of the game. If there's a crowd there and, and if that crowd was on top of them all game long and they had to go into halftime with people who screaming at them about how horrible they are and all that. Right. Yeah, but, they, no. but they got to go in. They got to hear every word the coach says. They got to hear every play call that was called into the huddle. Every third down was just like a first down and whatever it is. Right. And, and so um, you bring up a good point of recruiting. Right. Because, hey, no fans allowed in, in the stands. Uh, well, uh, how does players make official visits? to the University of Hawaii, right? Not a single player made an official visit in 2020, and yet Todd Graham was able to recruit and have a full recruiting class. And you're now looking at 2021 being the same way, where your your official visits are on Zoom, uh, and that's a tough way to recruit. Then you add on top of that, the University of Hawaii football program, right, a program that depends on money, on depends on uh, being able to fly coaches a certain way, to be able to pay right. for facilities and pay for certain equipment. They haven't sold a single ticket or hot dog in two years, right? And, yeah. and so, I mean, it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought on what this is doing to the University of Hawaii football program. And um, and we'll see what happens. Like I said, uh, you know, the question has been asked many, many times in, in press conferences um, with the governor of what's the philosophy and, and you know, it, you, you understand the, the frustration of there not being consistencies where 
parents can go attend youth soccer games or can go to the zoo or can go to do other outdoor public functions um, by the hundreds and in some cases by the thousands and uh, but not able to attend a very um, regulated University of Hawaii football game. And, you know, it, it and it's hard because it's hard to 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 fight against the the word of safety and 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 the health of people um because you don't want to stand up on a soapbox and say you know this is ridiculous let everybody in you know because people are at risk at the same time right. Right. the frustration is looking around and saying but wait why why are they allowed to do this why are they allowed to do this why are they allowed to do this but the university of hawaii can't do this right and uh i, I sense that from the University of Hawaii fan base, from the players, from the coaches, from everybody involved, that is the biggest frustration that we're looking at, right? I think the biggest, and, and I said this, you know, last week, and, and I really am going to stand by this, that it's one thing to be ashamed that you can't have fans allowed to attend a place by the thousands, but in the middle of a pandemic, that's understood. But the University of Hawaii, and this can go to any news sports channel in the world at a hundred percent vaccinated and a hundred percent mask outside with only 9,000 people. If it's full, which I'm 99% sure it would be the university of Hawaii would have the safest, smallest and most responsible football crowd period. Yeah. Bar none. FBS, FCS high school doesn't matter. Every football game that I have watched since this fall has began has been unmasked. There will be the occasional mask in there. You'll see some people in certain groups wearing masks, but you're talking about 10 times what UH is asking for unmasked. I watched the Oregon Ohio state game. That game was full unmasked the week before that Penn state versus Wisconsin when they did this jump around whole crowd unmasked and UH wanted 9,000 which would put you at the absolute bottom of Division One football, all masks with two checkpoints. That, I think, is the biggest disappointment. I think that when UH took the, the blow that they knew they were going to take by saying you had to be 100% vaccinated, by, by having to figure out their own way to get a 9,000-people stadium put up, because it's not like Aloha Stadium gave UH warning and said, okay, we're going to be condemned. You guys got to build your own thing. They figured it out in the news like we did and figured out a way to get the stadium there and went through the protocols where you made it 100% vaccinated, 100% masked in an outdoor setting. So if you can't get safer than that, when will it be safe? Because you can't do 101% vaccinated and you can't do 100% vaccinated double masked. So what, it, what becomes our threshold for safety? If 100% vaccinated and masked doesn't get it done, when is our threshold? And I think that is the biggest concern, especially when a lot of people have been vaccinated, have been social distancing, have been staying inside the house, have been avoiding public gatherings. Like myself, I'm not an outside person. I'm in the house. I'm in the house right now. I'm always in the house, you know? But at the same time, if you're telling us that if we vaccinate and mask up, this will get us back to normalcy, well, why are we punished for being the only crowd that's actually going towards normalcy? Because not only are these crowds unmasked, their vaccine mandate doesn't even exist. It's vaccine or proof of negative test. 
Now, if you're going to do that and you shut it down, I understand. Or if that was the original plan and then UH said the only way you could have it is if it's 100% vaccinated. Okay, then I get why an adjustment would need to be made to accommodate the safest possible setting. But for it to already be the safest possible setting, the smallest possible setting outdoors, I don't see how it is not allowed to happen. And when you look at the effects that it's having, no official visits. There's high schoolers leaving. And, you know, when we get further into high school football, the amount of high schoolers that have left Hawaii to go to other places to play football. And a lot of those kids end up being some of the best kids on the University of Hawaii team. Because as we know, guys like Darius Muasau and Kaimana Padello and Shevin Cordero, they came from Hawaii. And when you're not allowing them to go watch University of Hawaii play, you're not allowing these fans who have spent decades decades following a team that's had its ups and downs and when the university of hawaii itself puts forth every single barrier that they can to ensure that this would be the safest place possible it's not allowed to happen rob and i think honestly that's the biggest disappointment because you know everybody did absolutely everything they can and in fact we're doing more than what everybody else is doing and we're still not a lot. This is like having two siblings. You get all A's, they get B's and C's, yet you're grounded for bad grades. That's the best way I can put it. My siblings is running around, getting in trouble, getting kicked out of school. Not terrible, but I'm all A's, and I ain't went to the principal's office except for an honor roll. Yet I can't get sweets tonight. That's crazy. That's, yeah, man. Crazy. <laughs> so, that, that, that's, that's the analogy right there, man. I mean, and, and you have to imagine if you're the University of Hawaii football team, that's exactly what it looks like when you're looking around at the rest of the country, when you're looking around at the rest of your conference. So we'll see what happens this week, uh, you know, when, when everything was first announced uh, on the strengthening of protocols and, and, uh, and some of the restrictions that that was placed on the city and county and the state it, it was for a 28 day window which would take you right past the san jose state game so we'll see what happens uh you know a hail mary um you know hauled into the end zone maybe and you can have some fans here uh for the san jose state game on saturday but like i said don't hold your breath um i want to thank everybody who sent in questions to the bose football final mailbox you can find me on instagram at rob DeMello. Twitter at Rob DeMello, K-H-O-N. And uh, we're going a little long, so uh, just wanted to, to bring up one more uh, question that was asked by Team Diesel. And you kind of talked about it, but I want to get your thoughts on this specific way that it's asked. And uh, Team Diesel asked, last week, Turner wasn't used enough. This week, they forced it to him, using him too much. How do you go about fixing that problem? I think it would definitely just be solidified. Leave him and lock him. Um, you, you put too much pressure. If you want to give somebody the ball that many times, they probably should just be your quarterback. But the thing about it is you got a good quarterback. you got one that you could depend on and you can rely on. Calvin Turner getting the ball is something that should be happening, but it's not something that should be forced. You know, if, if Steph Curry's not knocking down threes, he's not just going to keep trying to get the ball behind the three-point line and knock down another three. He's going to let his teammates do what they do to get their selves going. And I think as far as Calvin Turner goes, if you put him in one position, then you know when you're going to use him. You don't do anything outside of that, then everybody else can be at their natural positions. If 
Calvin Turner's in the backfield. Day-Day Hunter's in the backfield. Nick Martin is going to be our receiver. And Jalen Walhall is going to be our other receiver. Then we know if we're going to throw the ball, we don't have to worry about Calvin Turner being an option. We don't have to worry about forcing the ball to Calvin Turner. If Dior Scott's going to be our punt returner, Calvin Turner's going to be our kick returner. Then come punts, we don't have to worry about making a special block for Calvin. When we get down, we don't have to worry about doing all types of different things to get Calvin the ball. I, I think one thing that turns it from a, a benefit to a problem is when you try to overstuff somebody. Eating is always good. Stuffing yourself is never good. So finding ways to get Calvin Turner the ball within the flow of the offense makes sense, but just forcing it to him, I think that's where you get the problem. And I think the ball being forced to him is one thing that comes from him being able to line up at slot, outside, running back, tailback, wildcat, when you have so many positions where you're essentially a threat and we know you're one of the best people, we're always going to try and get you the ball. Put them in one position. I think you don't have these problems as much. All right. Looking ahead, the University of Hawaii football team opens Mountain West Conference play against San Jose State on Saturday. That's at 630 at the Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex, a half hour later than usual. The game will be on Fox Sports 1, a national television outing for the University of Hawaii football team. And we talked a little bit about it or brought it up earlier in the show. Now I want to ask you about how the University of Hawaii goes about preparing for the Spartans in this game, the defending Mountain West Conference champions who beat the Rainbow Warriors at Aloha Stadium last season but you're doing it without Darius Muasau, who was ejected for targeting in the second half of the loss against Oregon State. He had six tackles prior to that. He was all over the field in pure 53 fashion where you know that you're going to watch the football and wherever that football goes, 53 is going to be there somehow, some way. Uh, they're going to have two quarters of play without him. How does the University of Hawaii prepare for that, R.J. Hollis? Uh, I think that this defense, that front seven, they're going to have to double down on those mouthpieces and they're going to have to pick the brain of 53, especially if I'm Panay Pavihi, if I'm Isaiah Tufunga, I'm going to have to figure out a way to do this. Last year, San Jose State lost two very, very good receivers in Trey Walker and Bailey Gaither, but they did bring back two outstanding running backs. And after seeing what they saw last week, I know the plan of attack for the first half is going to be run the ball. They did it last year. Now with Darius Muasau being out for the first half, you almost have to guarantee that this first half San Jose is going to come out and try and stuff the ball down the throat of UH. So that front seven, they're going to have to bow up. They're going to have to figure out a way to clog those holes. They're going to have to figure out a way to, to make sure that once Darius can come back in, he's just an extra piece instead of somebody that's now trying to save the game. So, you know, they just got to figure out how, how to do it with one man down. Darius Moussa was already in a mitt, already had his hand taped up, uh, looked like he was nursing an injury. So this has to become a thought in their head anyway. How are we going to play without 53? It, it's a big player to lose, but as far as when San Jose comes into town, you got to figure out a way to win. This is defending Mount West champs. And let's not forget that you can't spell L without Honolulu. So I got a memory. I don't know about y'all, but I remember that tweet from last year. And whether Darius is in or not, Calvin is in or not, I don't care. They came here last year, and when they won, they left showing off. They left being a little arrogant about it. 
UH got to get that that lick back. And, and whether it's no fans, whether it's full fans, half fans, whatever, UH has got to make a statement, especially after the games you had against UCLA and Oregon State, that we are here to play. Do a great game against San Jose, and you still let people know we are contenders in the Mountain West. Yeah, and it would go a long way for this University of Hawaii football team to, because the thing you got to remember is that all of their goals and that what's on their vision board or the things they want to accomplish this season, it's all still there. You have right. two losses to Pac-12 opponents, but your goals have not changed. A bowl game is still possible. A conference title is still possible. A division title is still possible. But it right. all starts with San Jose State and getting off on the right foot. And, you know, and before we go, I'm going to backtrack one thing because I, I wanted to bring up one question to you. Um, stemming from the Bose football final mailbox and completely slipped my mind is that I'll be completely honest with you. When I look through the questions and the comments for the BFF mailbox, we have about 25 calling for firing of Todd Graham, right? We have a, a 25 different questions or comments saying that this isn't going to work, that, you know, just put a halt to it already. And, and when I ask you six and six through the first 12 games of the season, and, and this isn't a, hey, you people are crazy. A, you know, this is more along the lines of what do you think leads to this frustration? Do you think it, it, it's, it's everything that we talked about. It's the no fan situation. It's people being held out of the, the, the stadium. It, it's the frustration of the University of Hawaii under Nick Rolovich finally getting over that hump. I mean, because you got to remember that Rolo left his program one game above 500. So it's not like the University of Hawaii was reeling off these, you know, uh, 10 and four seasons every single year. And, and, and then it, it, it leads you to where you are right now. I mean, this is a team that with a 10-win season, put Nick Rolovich one game above 500 for his entire tenure as the head coach. But then now here you are again at 500 through 12 games of Todd Graham. Uh, you know, what do you think leads to that frustration? I mean, I always go back to 2007 being the worst thing that ever happened in the University of Hawaii, right? Is going to the Sugar Bowl, going undefeated because the expectations – dramatically shifted to the point where in 2010, when they won a conference title, it was viewed by many as a disappointing season, right? And it's just because it was so fresh, you, you know what is possible with this program. Um, but just your thoughts, RJ, on what leads to that overwhelming response of let's burn this thing to the ground and start over again, despite being 500 through 12 games. Oh, I, I think it's, it's a, <laughs> I could almost 100%, you know, put it to fans not actually being accessible to the players since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, fans can't come to practice anymore. Fans can't come to games anymore. Fans can't come. They can't do anything. Like, unless you're a player or at some sort of media analyst position, you haven't been intimate with the University of Football, of Hawaii football, excuse me, since 2019. Now, Granted, that was, you know, putting Rolo as a total into uh, 500 wins. But the first year he comes, he wins the first bowl game in a decade, goes into a only two-year season or two-win season the year after that. But then the next two years, he wins 18 games, goes to two bowl games. You go to the conference championship, and then you beat BYU in the Hawaii Bowl, but not just any BYU, the BYU with first-round pick Zach Wilson in it. So there was a kind of sour taste left in a lot of fans 
when Rolo, in some people's mind, abruptly left. Granted, this was Washington State just being able to pay him a number that nobody should be mad at any human for turning down. That was the first thing. And Ty Graham had to deal with that before he even got in here. He just didn't know it. Fans were already kind of left with sort of sour taste in their mouth when Rolo left and everything was flying so good. Well, now those same fans can't watch the team play that they've been following for so long. And then when they do watch them play, if you didn't order pay-per-view for Portland State, then you've only seen UH get beat 44 to 10 by UCLA. And then by the time you started watching this game, it was 21 to zero against Oregon State. So I think there's a culmination of things. The biggest being that fans can't go watch these guys play. You know, some people have dedicated, and I've talked in in great detail with some people that have dedicated years of Saturdays, fall Saturdays rather, to watching the University of Hawaii play, have dedicated time to their families to go watch the University of Hawaii play, and now to be the only FBS school to watch your team through a TV screen it kind of adds to the frustration. It kind of adds to the, oh, he should have did that. It adds to a lot of the couch coaches because, you know, a lot of people will take a game if they're there and they can see your effort. But if you're never there, then you can never know how hard they're going. So I think a lot of the frustrations, a lot of the quick to, you know, pull them, fire them, do stuff like that. I think that for the past two years, it's been a very frustrating time to be a University of Hawaii football fan. You can only see the team if you travel. Nobody's seen Calvin Turner score on island. Like I said, it's affected the high school levels of football. It's affected the community of football. UH got a stadium built on campus, which was another, you know, Christmas gift to a team that just watched their coach leave after 18 win season. They got another coach. They weren't allowed to do it. Aloha Stadium gets shut down. And then you get this much of a glimmer of hope because they say, hey, We finally got a football stadium on campus. It's going to be historic. It's going to be huge. You guys are going to love it. Everything's going to be big. It's going to be great. And then eight days before the first game, yeah, never mind. You're not going to have that either. So the frustration has been way more than just the performances. I think it is so much stuff around in, you know, the University of Hawaii football team. And like you said, it is a major concern not having fans because that's what makes the team go. You know, players and coaches – Yes, they're a big part of it. They go out on the field and they make it happen. But without boosters, without support, without a student section, without 9,000 people to show up to watch you play, there is no University of Hawaii football. And I think these guys right now, the fans, especially on the island, are bearing the brunt of policies that are out of their control, of a pandemic that's out of their control. And, you know, they're starting to take it out essentially wherever they can. And, you know, there's always going to be those people. Every loss. He's fired at least three to five every game coach loses fire him. This is the SEC. Like, you know, that that's how they look at it. But I think the overwhelming amount of it is coming from the frustrations that the fans are dealing with. Rightfully so. I want to see the team play. They want to see the team play. I wish they could have saw the team play last year, you know, and, and just not being able to do all that. I, I think it's making it a very frustrating case for fans right now and you're starting to see some of them lash out and you know it, it does become a concern when yeah they miss san jose they miss portland state but if you wait till the fifth or sixth home game to finally decide to let fans come then by then who's to just say 
everybody's like, we don't even want to go now. Like, you know, that that becomes a major concern. So when you're a head coach dealing with that type of stuff, all of your mistakes are amplified. All of your bad games, all of your bad choices are amplified and nobody makes perfect decisions. Everybody has a down day. Ohio State just lost to Oregon for the first time ever at home on Saturday. You're not going to tell me Ohio State doesn't have a great coaching staff, that they don't have great players. They make mistakes like everybody else does. But for the fans that have to go through the transition of Rolo bringing in Graham, not being able to see the football team for two years, then Aloha Stadium gets shut down. They tell you you're going to have it on campus, do everything they can to make it safe, then pull the rug right from underneath your feet, and then you have to sit here and watch teams lose before you can't watch them play Mountain West. I'm getting mad even just talking about it. So it's like, you know, that that's, I think, a lot of the frustration is just coming from, you know, hey, some of these fans have, they have their vaccination card and mask ready. They, they've been holding on to their season ticket since 2019, refusing to sell it because they want to go see them. And because that can't happen, I think the frustration is starting to show. It's starting to bleed out into the fan base, you know. Hats off to the team for holding it together. Like I said, I was a fan guy. So to not have fans at all, I don't even know if I'd want to still be playing at this point. You know, my second year of no fans. So uh, it's frustration all across the board. And I think that's what we're seeing. You know, it's starting to show. It's starting to leak out. And, you know, I I feel for the fans. I really do. I I really do. But at the end of the day, it's outside of their control. It's outside of our control. So we can only hope that, you know, one day soon before it's too late, they do allow the fans to see them at some capacity or try to set up something to stand sheriff. I don't know, but some way there needs to be support allowed again for this team, because eventually I think that's just going to turn into disdain and animosity that these fans can't come. And even if let's say you get like an eight or nine win season, like you said, it goes back to everybody won 2007. You won undefeated. So you trash fire them. When you have that frustration, that's how people look at things. So I think that's what we're starting to see is the frustration is boiling onto the keyboards and the keyboards are making people say things that, you know, they wouldn't normally say or they wouldn't care if they had just saw it during a fun day of sun with the family. If we had just seen it after spending all day tailgating and having a good time. No, we had to sit here and wait all day to watch USC and Stanford for 30 minutes. <laughs> By the time the game comes on. That's still bothering you. <laughs> no, see, it's, it's the frustration, man. So it is bleeding, it's leaking. And, you know, right now for all of us, for the analysts, for the fans, for the players, for the coaches, we all just got to stand tough. Warriors are resilient. And at the end of the day, that's what we're being hit with. We are being hit with a, a overload of, necessary resilience as analysts as fans as players we do not already get what other programs get and now when we're getting the basic things taken away we we just gotta find a way to be tough and and, you know get through it but the, the frustration it's definitely stemming from way more than just performance i can i can almost guarantee that yeah the frustration completely understood the the fans of the University of Hawaii, I'm not even the football program of the University of yeah. Hawaii Athletics Department, um, oh. going through unprecedented times in more ways than one, and and the things that they've been prevented from being able to enjoy 
and 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 what has become just a staple in your fall in the state of Hawaii. I know before I even got into this industry, um, you know, that, that was a highlight of my year what was the fall and spending time with, with my dad and my uncle and my auntie at University of Hawaii home games and and whether they won or lost. I mean, you got to remember, I was a kid, you know, watching, you know, the Fred Von Oppen era and, and watching the Owen 12 season. And yet I still look back at that time. And I can remember certain games. I remember games from that season and moments with my family um, to this day. And now I'm 39 years old. You know, that was many years ago. And so uh, definitely uh, I feel for everybody. And, and that includes analysts. That includes fans. That includes players and coaches. That includes the staff. I mean, whether you're a sports information director or a ticket holder or whatever it is, a security checkpoint person at the right. university, um, it, it, it's definitely a, a, a situation that no one saw coming two years ago. And, and, and it's tough to believe that this is what we're living through right now. But with all that being said, and especially one thing I want to remind everybody is Bose Football Final, we are here to get your mind off of things like that, right? We are here for uh, to talk football and to talk about things uh, that that you enjoy, which is the University of Hawaii football program. And whether that's talking about them struggling, whether that's talking about them winning, um, that's the whole purpose of this, is to be able to have University of Hawaii football fans enjoy their product. And, and again, whether that's a win or loss, uh, we shall see, especially when you open Mountain West Conference play against San Jose State on Saturday. Clarence T.C. Ching Athletics Complex, 6.30, but it will be televised on Fox Sports 1. And as always, the Monday following the game, we'll be back here on BFF talking about what unfolded and what's ahead for this University of Hawaii football team. But that does it for us this week. For RJ Hollis, I'm Rob DeMello. We hope that everybody has a happy and healthy week ahead as the University of Hawaii prepares to take on San Jose State. RJ Hollis, Here's your chance to say goodbye to the people. Aloha. Everybody have a great week. Hopefully I'll see y'all next Monday.